You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2014. Today's episode is titled, Asking Powerful Questions. When Jesus wanted to reveal his destiny to his disciples, he asked a powerful question. Who do you say I am? Jesus had to ask the question twice because the first time they answered with what others said about his identity. The second time, Peter responded to the question with the understanding that came from the Father. He said, You are the Messiah, Christ, the Son of the living God. From Peter's answer, Jesus knew that the Father had revealed his identity to his disciples. Therefore, his disciples were ready for more truth about his mission on earth. Asking powerful questions is one of the best ways to help all types of people wrestle with truth and give them an opportunity to better understand truth. Excellent organizational leaders must learn to communicate clearly, compellingly, and cogently. Powerful questions can be one of the best ways to facilitate effective communication and therefore release individual and organizational potential. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Asking Powerful Questions. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Trust you're having a delightful conference, hearing things. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, this is uh, facilitator training. We want to talk to you a little bit about what it takes to facilitate transformation. You know, that's really uh, the essence of what parenting is. It's the essence of what pastoring should be. It's the essence of what management should be. And if you saw the text out of uh, Romans 13 last night, as I see it, uh, it's really the essence of what public policy should do as well. Always transformation. Transformation is change. It's moving from where we are to where we should be. Now, we're out of small group, so we're going to have a conversation, but I'd like to make some opening comments as we get into this, and then I'm going to give you some choices. How about that? So in our culture today, uh, one of the fundamental presuppositions is that men and women are not inherently evil. In fact, the sense is that evil or sin, as we might call it in Christian circles, is simply just dysfunctionality. There's nothing inherently within man or woman that makes them evil. They choose to be evil, or maybe there's cultural pressure on them to be evil, or maybe it's just something snapped and they're doing things they shouldn't do. When you have that concept of evil, then you have no need for a savior because all you have is dysfunctionality, and the way you deal with dysfunctionality is you manage it in some way. Now, we have a postmodern culture today that thinks this way, and if you start thinking about where this is going to go, it's just a matter of time before someone makes the, connects the dots and says, well, you know, since man is not fundamentally evil, but yet we still have these dysfunctional people out there, all we really need to do to create utopia here is to take care of the dysfunctional people. And how do we take care of them? Well, we remove them from the society in some way. You can remove them and lock them up. You can remove them and exterminate them. You could try to rehab them, but rehab doesn't generally work too well, so most likely they'll be locked up or exterminated. So when will that happen? 
who knows? But it's logically where this is all going to go, unless there is a return to the biblical truth of the fallen state of man, in which case man is helpless to help man. In fact, if you've been a student of Scripture, you know that most of the Bible that you might have in your hand is the Old Testament. And most of the Old Testament is about the Jewish people under the law. And the law is a testimony to the fact that man can't make himself right with God. Man can't make good enough fig leaves to be acceptable with God. That's a big thing from the Old Testament. So that paves the way for now for Christ. Christ is then necessary if we're going to be able to successfully deal with our sin nature and then be able to do what God put us here to do. And so transformation is about recognizing the depravity of man, the fallen state of man. It is systemic in human nature that we have to recognize that. And now if we're going to live well in God's universe and we're going to do what God put us here to do, we have to be transformed, moved from this fallen state into a state where we can walk in holiness and righteousness of God. So that's the challenge we have. And that's what we're about. And any time we're facilitating groups is we're trying to facilitate transformation. Now, that's uh, it's a simple way to put it, but it's, it's very obviously very challenging. Uh, on the, at lunch today, we were talking a little bit about, you know, what, what should church be? What should families be? And the reality is, you know, when, when congregations meet, local churches meet, what should be happening there is a facilitation of transformation. That's really what success is. Now, today we define success in the church world by numbers of programs and numbers of people and, and a square, feet, square footage of your building and how big is your budget and those kinds of things. We don't define it biblically. Biblically, the only thing that really matters is are we trading you know, tangible wealth for true wealth? Are we helping people move from the fallen state into the redeemed state? Are we helping people walk out the reality of Christ in you? Or are they still living over here, you know, in the world? So you as facilitators, no matter what you're facilitating, should be seeking to facilitate transformation. Now, I told you we're going to give you some choices here. We have about uh, 55 minutes here uh, together. And I've got five major topics that have been assigned to me. And if you were with me last night, you know I had four major topics. I got through one and maybe a quarter, maybe. And I could have done the one better than I did it, but I didn't have the time to do, do any more justice to it. So I've got five major topics, axioms and corollaries, presuppositional thinking, paradigm shifts, asking powerful questions, or facilitating groups. So I'm going to let you give me some feedback. What is it you would like to hear? What would you think would bless you and help you the most? So I'll let you vote. We're going to be democratic here. All right, so first one is axioms and corollaries. Who would like to hear that? Nobody. Well, that must be the one you really need. Okay. All right, presuppositional thinking. All right, we have one. Two, all right? Paradigm shifts. One, two. Asking powerful questions. 
Okay, there's more in there, probably five or six. Facilitating groups. One. So I guess we're going to talk about asking powerful questions, at least right now. We'll start out there. How about that? Asking powerful questions. You know, powerful questions are the essence of the Jesus methodology of teaching. Have you ever noticed that? How many questions he asked? For example, when uh, he wanted to reveal his destiny to his disciples, he starts with a question. The question was, who am I? Now, if we go up and, and introduce ourselves and we say, who am I, Royce? Who am I? Hmm? Hmm? Who am I? You're, the son of, uh, you're a son of God. Okay, well, that's a pretty good answer, yeah. I, by the way, I asked Dudley this morning when he was talking about identity, I said, how do you define identity? Okay. And he paused for a second and he started talking about, well, you've got to talk about it in terms of security and purpose. And I said, well, okay, those are reasonable, but what about your creator? Doesn't your identity come from your creator? The person that... that Gave you birth. Ultimately, God birthed you through a mother. He created you. He defines you. So who are you in relationship to him? And that was a good answer you gave me. I'm a son of the Most High God. If I don't know the Lord, I am still created in the image of God. He created me. I may be living in rebellion, my sin nature in rebellion against him, but I am his I've been created by him. So identity is very important. We have to define our identity in terms of our relationship to our creator and the purpose for which our creator created us. So I'd offer you as two key elements of, the, of what identity is are those two elements right there. Who birthed you? Ultimately, not your mother, but your, ultimately the, the God birthed you through the mother. And why did he give birth to you? So... That's a very powerful question to ask. So Jesus asked that question. He asked his disciples, who am I? And they said, oh, well, some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or, uh, or one of the prophets of the Old Testament. All, you know, all kinds of different answers here. He said, no, 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 who do you say that I am? What's your opinion of my identity? And they said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, of course, say the Christ that referred to an Old Testament prophetic prophecy relative to the Messiah that was to come, the anointed one who was going to fulfill all the things that the Old Testament had promised that had not been fulfilled, who was going to rectify all the things that had gone wrong with Israel in the Old Testament. It was all going to be rectified through this anointed one. So he is the one the scriptures are talking about, and he is the son of the living God. His identity is defined in his relationship to his, to his father. So as they got that, he said to them, you didn't, you didn't make that up. No human being told you that. It didn't come from human origin. It came from my father. Now, based on the reality that you know who I am, now I'm going to tell you my destiny. See, identity is all about who are you in relationship to your creator and what is it he's created you to do? Now, that is one of the most key things you're trying to do with your students, is help them see their real identity. 
So every time you're interacting with your students, it's all about, okay, can you see who you are? Do you have a clue about what God has created you to do? And sometimes you'll see it before they will. Sometimes you'll see the call of God on their life and you'll begin to call it out. Usually, at least my experience has been, uh, most of the time, relative to me, I'm the last person that sees me accurately. Other people are seeing me before I see myself. And, and if I'm not tapping into them, I'm not going to see myself well. I was talking to a young man last night who kind of comes in, goes out, comes in, goes out of you know these, this circle here. And we keep telling him the same thing. This has been going on for almost 15 years. It continues. So I was telling him last night, I said, here's the key. You have got to connect. He said, well, I've just got to sit down and figure it all out. I said, no, you don't have to figure it all out. What you need to do is connect. And then the Holy Spirit will show you through the community what he's saying to you, who you are in Christ, and what he's created you to do. You keep trying to figure it out by yourself. And that is why it doesn't work. And so year after year after year, you keep going through the same exercise, and you're not going anywhere. You've got to change something, and the proper thing to change here is you've got to be in community. So we've got to learn to ask these powerful questions that draw people into a revelation of their true identity in Christ. Now, this methodology uh, is commonly known as the Socratic method of learning. It's named after Socrates. Socrates was famous for being a peripathetic teacher. You know what a peripathetic teacher is? Almost pathetic. No, no, peripathetic. <laughs> There's a Greek word, okay? And the Greek word peripatheo means to walk around. A peripathetic teacher is walking around, and he's asking questions. He's asking questions like, what do you mean by identity? One time, Socrates reportedly was talking to someone, and uh, he said, Hi, Rick. How you doing? Good. Rick, are you a success? Yes. You are. Are you a success because you have a bunch of money? No. Okay. Well, pretend like you are. Okay. okay. Right. For the sake, of, the, for the sake of this <laughs> illustration. So you're a success because you have made a bunch of money. Yes. And what is it you're going to do with that money? I'm going to enjoy spending it. Okay. Well, in this case, the guy said, well, I'm going to help facilitate justice. Okay. Which, that's not a t too, too bad answer, is it? Yeah. And Socrates says, what is justice? Yeah. Guy had not thought about that. Who gets to find what is just? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Well, we just drilled down a little deeper here. Well, what is this? Now, Socrates, as far as I could tell, was not a student of the Old Testament. Had he been, he could have continued that question on and led himself and led the people he was talking to to a revelation about the God that's revealed himself in Scripture. You see, that's how we've got to begin to work, is we've got to lead people into a discussion that will lead them to Christ. In the Greek language, there is a word called R.K., is anybody familiar with the word R-K? Heard that word? R-K means starting point. Everything has an R-K. If you're going to talk about money, what's the R-K of money? 
Anybody ever thought about that? What's the starting point? Why is it that we have money? Now, you do realize that when you're born, you come into the world, have you noticed you have no assets, no money? Anybody notice that? And then when you leave, whatever it is you accumulated, it stays here, and you go. Okay, so what does that tell me about the RK, the basic foundational reality of money? What is it? Tool, time. You know, Dennis likes to find money as time in foldable form. That's one of his famous quotations. And uh, I think what he's saying there is that it took time to produce that money, and by virtue of having the money now, you have, you have an opportunity to use time in a different way. That's what he's saying there. But more fundamental than that, I think money is a tool. It's a tool to do what? What would be money? What, what would you do with money? If you are about doing what you've been created to do, then you should be using money to facilitate the will of God in your life. And you should be using money to facilitate the will of God in the lives of others. Another one of our lunchtime discussions was about benevolence. Got, uh, was talk, I was, JT was my lunch partner today, so we had a lot of conversation about a lot of things. He's a financial advisor. So he lives in that world of money. And so we, he, you know, he started talking about, well, we've, we've got benevolence at our church, but uh, we really don't have a process for screening. So if somebody comes to us and says, you know, um, I need money for these hospital bills, most likely they're just going to write a check and donate some money to the hospital bills. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And maybe it is and maybe it isn't. We've got to have some way to discern, is that what they should do or not? Well, I shared with him our policy at our church, what we try to do. And I, I may say this, I'm going to share the policy. It's a theoretical policy because we're not perfect at executing this. But I think it's philosophically, theoretically, a good policy. And that is if you ask for benevolence, what you do is you come to a leader in the church and you make your request to that leader. The leader goes then to the senior leadership, which would be the elders and pastors, and makes their request. And basically, that, that leader is saying, I endorse this. I, I agree this is a, a wise use of our resources. And what the senior leaders are saying is this. Does this use of money enable us to buy transformation? We want to trade up. I want to trade physical assets for true wealth. That's kind of a different thought process, isn't it? Trade physical assets for true wealth. Jesus said in the parable in Luke 12 when about the, the remember the man that you know was wealthy, the farmer, and uh, the ground produced a lot of you know a lot of grain for him, and so he said, "Well, I got all this grain. What I'm gonna do? I, I got, my barns are too small. Tear them down, big barns, and just fill these big barns up with grain, and I can I can retire and take life easy." Eat, drink, and be merry, you know? I, and then the, the proverb goes, the parable goes on to say, the Lord spoke to him that night and said, Tonight, your life is required of you. Then, what will become of your wealth here? Well, there's a lot of lessons there, one of which is he didn't trade up. 
In fact, the, the conclusion of the parable is, why didn't you store up true riches, riches that I value? You stored up riches that you valued in the natural, which is only a temporary tool. I want riches that are, that are valued into eternity. And you didn't do that. You see, always, you always want to take tangible assets and trade up to real riches. So that's, that should be governing your benevolence policy. It should be the way that you raise your children. I want to invest money in my children that will facilitate transformation. I want to invest money in people that I'm working with in any context to facilitate transformation. So asking powerful questions is a great way to begin to really see what's going on with people and to lead them where you want them to go. Questions reveal both the condition of the soul and where the Holy Spirit is working. And you need to know both. What is the condition of the person I'm working with? And what's the Holy Spirit doing here? Powerful questions are relevant. They uncover root issues. And they propose remedies. So for a question to be relevant... You've got to pay attention to the context, and you've got to know something about why the question's being asked. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, uh, Good master, or good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded to that with a question. Remember that? No, you probably grew up as I did, and you were told, you don't answer a question with a question. Were you told that? That's why I was taught. You don't answer a question with a question. Jesus, I'm sorry, didn't have our training. I guess he just didn't understand. So he answered the question with a question. He said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. He didn't really answer the question at all, did he? The guy said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus did not answer that question. He dealt with a more fundamental issue. When that person made that question, Jesus picked up on that word good. He said, you called me good. You said good teacher. Do you realize there's none good but God? Because good is a divine attribute. And so Jesus picked up on that and, and challenged him. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Do you recognize that I am God? Are you recognizing that? Is that what you're really seeing? So he was trying to dig down to that through a question. And, of course, he didn't know what to say to that. So then Jesus went on in answering the question and pointed out, it doesn't matter how many good things you do. You can never make yourself right with God. And the way he did that is said, well, you sell everything. Give away everything. Everything is valuable to you. You sell it and you give it away. Now, some people have interpreted that to mean, well, then we should be you know, giving a lot of money away. And some people have become very fanatical, like say, well, I give away 90%, live on 10%, things like that. But I don't think that's the sense of it. I think what he was doing is challenging the mammon worship of the man. Is money so important to you that you have to hold on to it? Are you willing to give it all away? The guy walked away and said, I can't do that. That's too big a price. Yeah. There's no way that you can do enough to merit favor with God. That only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the free gift of the cross. So we ask powerful questions like Jesus did 
to uncover reality in people and to draw them into a deeper conversation about where they are with Christ. So powerful questions have to be relevant. They have to speak to whatever it is that's going in that, that person's life. So whatever the topic is, it doesn't matter what it is, you've got to learn how to ask that powerful question that will draw out reality in that person. The next thing is powerful questions are, are about digging out root issues. Can we get to the real root of what's going on? You know, this, the topic of this particular conference is being able to see beyond the natural into the supernatural. Now, we heard, we heard uh, Dr. Kotlikoff, a very learned man. I had the privilege of spending about an hour and a half with him yesterday. I picked him up at the airport, and then we spent some time in the lobby here talking. And we had a very interesting conversation. And that's where I discovered that he did not have a biblical view of evil. Uh, his view of evil is simply evil's dysfunctionality. So in his mind, there's no need of a Savior. So you have no need of a Savior, then you're not looking for a Savior. There has to be a profound conviction in you that systemic in human nature is a state known as sin. And we all have that state. If we think in some way we are not fallen, we're just choosing to make mistakes, then we think we can fix ourselves by ourselves. Now, Adam and Eve tried to fix themselves by themselves. They sewed fig leaves together, and that was a picture of their effort to be acceptable with God, and we know that didn't work. And God made it clear, you can't make the right garments for you, so I will give you a garment, I will slay a lamb, which is a picture of Christ, and I will wrap you in that lambskin, which is a picture of the salvation we have in Christ. That is the only way you can be acceptable with God. He doesn't have a clue how that works. And so consequently, how does he approach the problems that we have in our culture? He is a naturalist. You know what a naturalist is? You heard the term naturalism? I was trained as a scientist, and I was trained by naturalists. People that, that viewed physical reality as the only reality. There's no reality beyond it. And therefore, everything that we experience has a natural interpretation, a natural cause, a natural explanation. And so that's how he thinks as a professor of economics, and so that's how he approached the economic issues. Another thing, if you listen to him, you noticed that he assumed that we could fix these problems. You guys didn't hear him, but at dinner last night, at the speaker's dinner, he, he articulated that we needed to start a new political party. And I, I wanted to get all over that one, but I didn't want to dominate the conversation. Because, I mean, that assumed that a new political party would be wise enough and capable of fixing everything. But I would argue with him and say, you're assuming that man is not fallen and man has the power, the potency in and of himself to make the right choices. Furthermore, how would man know what those right choices are? How would you know what's right and what's wrong? Just like we talked about Socrates asked, what is justice? If you don't have an RK, a foundational starting point, and say, this person right here or this body of revelation is the RK for justice. It defines what justice is. And so we look to that to understand what justice is. This is where it's so important as we're, we're working with people, we learn how to drill down to those fundamental presuppositions that drive every one of us. 
You see, every person here has a foundational presupposition that's driving your life. It drives everything about your life. Everything you think and every, every action you take can be tracked back to that fundamental presupposition. And see, if you as a, a skilled Socratic interrogator can get back to that fundamental presupposition, now you're going to deal with the root issue. So what is your fundamental presupposition? What would that be? Some of you have been through the training, so just hold off. I know you know the answer. But leave the others that haven't had the training an opportunity to wrestle with this. What's the fundamental presupposition that every human being makes, whether they're conscious of it or not, they have made this assumption? What is it? The basic one. The basic presupposition of life. Is there a God? Is there not a God? Who is God? Who is God? That is the basic presupposition. From a Christian perspective, we answer that quite simply. In the beginning, what? God. The God of the Bible. Not in the beginning, Allah. Not in the beginning, Buddha. Not in the beginning, you know, man. Not in the beginning, nothing. It's in the beginning, the God of the Bible spoke. And now everything has come forth from that. Everything that works in this universe has come from that. You have come from that. And now you live out of that reality. So everything in your life goes back to your view of God. You make decisions out of your view of God. The more correct your view of God is, the better your decisions will be. So I'm on an airplane here a few years ago. And... I was, I'd been, I don't even remember where I was, but I was tired and wasn't really in the mood to engage in a conversation. So I was trying to, to rest, mind my own business, lean back in my seat. This was back in the days when the seats did lean back and just try to, you know, kind of recover from a, you know, a few days of intense teaching and training. And this lady next to me wanted to talk. She was a chatty Kathy. So, so I finally, okay, all right, so let's talk here. What would you like to talk about? And she, very, very soon it got around to abortion. I don't know how it got around to abortion. And it's very clear what her view was. Now, I had a choice there. I could begin to talk to her about, about pro-life and talk to her about being pro-death. I could do that, couldn't I? Yeah, I could have done that. And where would have that taken the conversation? Just buttheads, and nobody would have won, wouldn't have gotten anywhere. And it just made my headache worse. So I said, okay, let's do something different here. Let's use our BLS training here, and let's drill down to her root presupposition. Let's see if we can do that. And so I just began to ask her questions. I said, well, why is it that you think abortion is a good thing? And she told me, and so that led to another question, and that led to another question, and another question, and pretty soon we have drilled down to the question, well, who is God to you? And she began to see, and I think she was a former Baptist. I think that's what she was, as I recall. And she was realizing 
you know, I have rejected my background. I've rejected all the things that I was taught as a child about God, and I have adopted an atheistic worldview. I said, well, based on your assumption about God, I understand your view. I understand why you believe in abortion. Because you see no reason, there's no purpose for human life. Human beings are just chemicals, the product of slime and time. There's no divine origin here. There's no divine intent. There's no meaning to life, so everybody just fends for themselves, does what they want to do. You know, this is, this is humanism. This is what it leads to. So we got down to that level. And she understood, I understood why she believed in what she believed. And I said, can you understand if I don't accept your presupposition, I will come to a different conclusion? She just kind of paused there like, whoa, I had not thought about that. It's a whole new level. This is how we have to learn how to interact with people to be effective. If we want to help them see truth, we've got to be able to help them see the lie they are accepting. And that lie always has to do with who is God. His character, his nature, how he's revealed himself, how he works, how he's created man, man's need for a savior. All of those things flow from your theology. So powerful questions have to get down to the root issues, the real root issues that re relative to God. And finally, powerful questions have to present a remedy. To be powerful, questions must seek to develop a remedy that will facilitate transformation. Transformation is about repentance. It's about change. You know, we live in a, a culture which is all caught up with signs and wonders. Have you, have you all noticed that? Is that true of your culture, where you are? A lot, of, a lot of focus on that. It's a lot of focus on God showing up. You all hear that? That kind of comment, a lot going on? Well, that's, that seems to be very popular today. And um, it's very interesting. As I see people caught up with that, I'm always looking for, what is the level of maturity that this person is living in? What are they, what, what, why is it so important for them that God do some kind of supernatural thing? What, what's the deal here? And so I began to look at Scripture, and I said, you know, how did Jesus view this? You know, he did a lot of this stuff. He seemed to really enjoy doing these signs and wonders. Um, but, you know, what, what was his view on this? So I want to read you a text here where he talks about his view on signs and wonders. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Y'all look at me like, are you reading scripture? I am. I'm reading to you out of Matthew 11, verse 20. So you can look it up if you want. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because... Why? Why would he denounce? He just did these miracles in all these towns, incredible things, manifested the glory of God, and now he's denouncing them. What's it mean to denounce something? You denounce something, don't you reject it? 
Why would he do this? Because what? They did not repent. Repentance is more important than a sign or a wonder. If a sign of wonder produces repentance, praise the Lord. If it does not, it did not accomplish its purpose. The purpose for a sign or a wonder is all about bringing people into alignment with God. It's about transformation. Now, that's a hard one today, particularly if you're in the charismatic stream, because this whole signs and wonder thing is becoming huge. And, and it, we're getting it distorted because we're losing track of why God does what he does. You know, Scripture says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Remember that out of Psalms? Now, how many, how many of you understand that one? When my dad died, it wasn't very precious to me. It was very painful. And it's still painful. Even to try to share that with you right now, it brings up pain in me that my dad is not with us anymore. But precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You see, until I can see it like God sees it, I need transformation. Yeah, I need change. It doesn't mean that we won't miss. I mean, one of the most startling things to me is Jesus going to raise Lazarus. And he shows up late. You see, everybody said, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. You know, they knew the power he had. And then he goes out to see the tomb, and it says he wept. And you're saying, why did he weep? He's getting ready to raise him from the dead. Now, if you and I were out there doing this and knew we were going to raise somebody dead, would we be crying? No, we wouldn't be crying. We'd, we'd be out there saying, oh, just, just wait. I'm getting ready to show you all something. It's going to be incredible. You know, but he didn't do that. He goes on. He is weeping. He's empathizing. There's pain and death at the same time. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. See, Jesus showed his humanity and his deity right there, side by side. And we've got to learn to be able to experience the humanity and also begin to see something of the divine perspective on every issue. Powerful questions are about helping us learn how to do that. Powerful questions are about transformation. If I can't help you grow, what am I doing? What's the point? We were talking about small groups at lunch as well. And uh, we've been doing small groups at our congregation for 25 years. And I've been with, involved with them for 25 years. And in fact, I've been involved with them longer than that. I remember doing Bible studies over 40 years ago when I was in graduate school. So I've been in, around small groups and worked in small groups, done who knows how many Bible studies over the years, done a lot of this stuff. But I didn't understand the real objective. I thought it was about communicating information, helping you understand the Bible better, which that's helpful but the real objective is not so much helping you understand the Bible. It's to facilitate what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. And he wants to change you. So can I sense that? Can I see what he's doing? Can I help him in some way 
help facilitate what he's doing in your life? You see, if I can do that, then I can help you change. That is real success. That's really challenging, though. That takes it to a whole other level. I told you at the beginning, my view, because of my own study and processing of this information over the years, I've come to the view now that transformation is the only real fruit. It's the only real fruit of anything. It's the real fruit of marriage. It's the real fruit of family. It's the real fruit of a Christian congregation. It's the real fruit in business. It's the real fruit of public policy. Now, those of you that heard me talk about this, I I referred to Romans 13 last night. Let me just look back at that with you real quickly. Because I think this this is, you know, where it shows it in public policy, and I think it's rather startling. Where it says, um, Romans 13, I'm just going to read this to you, and I'll pause at the key points. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Which includes even dysfunctional authority. God works through dysfunctional authority. Well, just look at Pharaoh. Was Pharaoh a dysfunctional authority? I would say so. But God worked through him to accomplish his purpose. We see that in the book of Exodus. The authorities that exist have been established by God. God put them there. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Now, we're talking about powerful questions, so what is right? What does that mean? Well, what is the RK for defining what is right? It's got to be God, and his revelation through the scripture is is the most complete revelation of what is right. So that right there is telling us that authority has got to be about discerning what is right biblically. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, which is the opposite of right. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant. By the way, it's also the word minister. The word for minister is diakonia. And diakonia in the Greek language literally means one who executes the commands of another. So here this civil authority, this police officer, this legislature, this judge, this administrator, this president, this leader in civil affairs, he is God's minister for your good. And we talked about the word good last night. We talked about how there, in the Greek language there are two words for good. And one word is agathos, the other one is kalos. And we have a great picture of what the inference is of those two words from Matthew 7, 
verse 17, where it says, A good tree bears good fruit. A good tree, the first first good there is the word agathos. That refers to a tree that's inherently healthy internally. It's internally healthy. That good tree bears kalos, fruit. Now that's referring to what is external. Kalos is external goodness. Agathos is internal goodness. And goodness has to do with that which is consistent with how God designed it to be. It's healthy. In fact, frequently scripture uses that term uh, for sound. It's talking about something that's healthy, which it means it aligns with the design that God has for it. So here this minister, this civil authority who's a minister of God, who's been appointed by God, been placed there by God for doing you good. And that word good there is agathos. Agathos is about internal goodness. How do we get internal goodness? Transformation. That tells me that that civil authority should be a tool of God to facilitate transformation in our lives. That puts government in a different category, doesn't it? Wow. Ministers to facilitate transformation. Well, I just want to illustrate this because I think that is a picture of how every authority figure should function. It does not matter what jurisdiction. The, the seamless garment is a reality that we're all in the game of helping to facilitate transformation. The reason I'm here is in some way, if I can discern what the Spirit's trying to do in you and facilitate his work of transforming you, then that to me will be success. That's how you have to approach your groups. When you're sitting down to work with someone in your group, you're asking, what is the Holy Spirit doing with JT? What's he doing with Pierre? You know, what's he doing with Natalie? Where are you from, Natalie? Australia. Australia. Oh, I should have known that. I heard that. Can you understand me? Okay, I don't. You're fluent in American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Can you hear Texan? We've got we got relationships in Singapore, and they 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 speak Singlish there. Singlish can be hard. You know, I sometimes I struggle. I mean, on this phone call, I just finished a, a two-year you know BLS 100 200 with a group from Singapore. And there were times I was really struggling, but by the grace of God, I had an apprentice who, was, who lives and works in, in China. And so he understood Singlish much better than I did. So he was able many times to interpret as I tossed the ball to him and say, what are they saying? <laughs> I don't understand this. <laughs> we're speaking the same language. <laughs> All right, so do you see how this works? I want you to see in Scripture... The scripture is telling us that even civil authorities who most of us have no thought about them facilitating transformation, that's their real game. They don't know it, and most of us don't know it. Scripture tells us it is. So my suggestion is let's line up with scripture, and let's start praying and seeking to be be facilitators of transformation in every way, and specifically through the BLS training that you guys are going to do as as facilitators, that's really what success is. Okay, somebody got a question?
What's the difference between transformation and repentance? Repentance is the starting point of transformation. Repentance means to change your mind. You've got to change your thinking. Transformation now is about finishing the process and actually changing your actions. You know, just because you change your thinking doesn't mean your actions are automatically changed. Now you have to be retrained. Like the, uh, the difference between alignment and agreement? Um, that Dennis teaches? Yes, yes. You can have agreement, you know, mental agreement, but you don't, I mean, until you have the practice in you of alignment, you're not really in agreement. And we all start out with mental assent, and then we eventually get trained to do, to walk out the reality of that mental assent. Okay. Natalie, did you have something? I'm going to get very close to you so I can Sorry, hear you. Just back at the beginning when you were talking about identity. Uh-huh. Um, uh, would it be fair to say then um, that idolatry is really the beginning or like the, the archaic of idolatry is really um, accepting any other identity mm-hmm. outside of Christ? Mm-hmm. That's idolatry. Yeah. yeah, any other God but the true God of the Bible is idolatry. If we start thinking about this, you know, you may accept the God of the Bible, but you may not know much about him. And so there's a level of idolatry in all of us. And the degree to which we can purge that idolatry by getting a correct view of God is the degree to which we equip ourselves now with the ability to line up with him better. The more I understand him and I know him, the better I can live with him. I can make right choices. I know what right and wrong is. Okay, someone else. Yeah, Wayne. Uh-huh. One of the hardest things that I had to learn, and I'm still learning, uh-huh. is to figure out what they're really asking. Yes. Yes. You know, I, when I started out, I would answer the question they asked. Yeah. And then I realized that's, you know, that isn't, that isn't the root of yeah. the issue. Yeah. You know, and can you give us some tips as to how we can help drill down into people like the lady yeah. you're sitting next to on the airplane? Yeah. Yeah, I think you you have to recognize that many times you're dealing with symptoms. So you have to begin to probe and say, okay, why do you think that way? You know, what led you to that conclusion? Okay, and so as you begin to ask those questions, and and when they respond, you can always play off their response to ask another question. What do you mean by that? Well, how does that work? And where did you get that? What makes you think that's true? Do you believe in truth? Oh, well, how do you define truth? You know, what's your authority for that? You just drill down like that with questions, and it'll, you'll eventually have to come down to their RK of life, which is ultimately, well, who is God to you? What do you believe? Who, who do you believe he is, and how does he work, and what's his nature? And that's, that's where the real root is. If you can make transformation there, now you change everything else. But if you stop short you're not really going to get transformation. You're going to get maybe what looks like mental ascent, but in reality isn't. You know the old adage, you know, he who's convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You've heard that adage? I mean, my dad said that, I don't know how many times I heard that growing up. But there was a reality in that. If you don't have agreement at the RK level, the fundamental axiomatic level, then... You know, you really don't have agreement. They may just want to get rid of the discussion. Get, you know, I'll agree to anything you say. You know, just stop it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. 
And so you've got to be sensitive to know, you know, when you're reaching that point and you're not, you know you're not doing anything. Um, it'd be better to take a nap. But if you can have a conversation and get down to the arcade level, it can make a big difference. Now you can offer them truth. Because reality is everybody makes what's called Pascal's Wager. You familiar with Pascal's Wager? Blaise Pascal? You guys probably know Blaise Pascal, don't you? Yes, you would. Pascal was a very interesting physicist, mathematician, and theologian, as well as a philosopher. Lived in the 17th century. And his wager was quite simple. He said this. If you choose to believe that there is no God, and then you live out your life that way, you know, you live to do your will according to your ways, and when it's all over, there's nothing. If I choose to live in light of the belief that the God of the Bible is the true God, and I try to live in light of him and his revelation to me, I can live a very good life, a very fruitful and peaceful and joyful life. And then at the end, I am no worse off than you are. And if I am right... I'm infinitely better off than you are because I followed the way of the true God and you haven't. And so that's what he called his wager. And his conclusion was it made no sense, logically no sense to be an atheist. There's no upside. There's absolutely no upside to be an atheist. So that was his argument, uh, one of his arguments for the existence of God. It's called Pascal's Wager. And a famous Civil War general adopted his uh, argument and used it uh, when he was teaching uh, before the Civil War. Does anybody know who, who that was? Famous Civil War general? Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson. That was his argument. Okay, somebody else have a question? Yes? In the whole issue of you know, the arcade, mm-hmm. getting the, the basic presupposition. So mm-hmm. as, we're, as we're, in your experience, having, you know, been over this material many times with many groups, yeah. um, the number of, of, uh, of uh, people that we're going to be dealing with, that, mm-hmm. that is the root issue that we mm-hmm. have to get to sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. 80%, all of them? 100%. Doesn't matter if they've been in the church forever. Hundred percent. So they're they're they've been they're born again and everything, and they've been Christians for evangelical, they're Catholic, they're atheists. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Everybody's got the same issue. Who is so, God to you? So in the in your, I guess what I'm saying in your experience when they're getting into this material, mm-hmm. that is, doesn't matter where they've come from, they haven't answered that question, or at least thought their way through. Well, there are different means. levels of maturity, obviously. Sure. What we're doing every lesson of the BLS. We're coming at it, all these different principles and different ideas, but we're ultimately trying to get down to, can I give you a better view of God? A better understanding of who he is, how he works, and what he wants to do in and through you. I'm continually trying to to deal with that at that level. And as you begin to get that, and it transforms you, it changes your life. You become different because from the inside, agathos. The goodness intrinsically in you is coming out because God is changing you. Not because of you, because of him. The power in Christianity always comes from him, not from us. 
You see, one of the, one of the false presuppositions of our good doctor last night was he believed in human potency. He has to believe in human potency because he thinks man can fix man's problems. Okay? Man can't fix man's problems. The only person that can fix God, man's problems is, is God working through man. That's what fixes man's problems. So that's part of what we offer in the BLS is a correct view of how God, where the power comes from and how God works through us with his power. Powerful questions. Always know you can play off of anyone's question and ask a question. What do you mean by this? Okay, where did you get that? Why do you think that? These are just typical, simple questions you can always play off of. Okay, yes, what's your name? Kim. Kim, yep. you speak American. I got it. <laughs> so, uh, how, how oftentimes I've been in groups like this where the leader wants to preach. Or yes. Or yes. Talk 95% of the Yes. Time. Hopefully I haven't been guilty of that. No. In your experience, well, as you run these things, what, how, as a leader, how much, I mean, are you just asking questions? How, how much talking are you doing? And even just the whole pregnant pause yeah. and people yeah. not engaging and people yeah. not talking and not wanting to talk. Or yeah. You want me to answer that? Yes. He asks questions. He gets us to answer the questions. Even if no one is like dead silence. <laughs> I don't mind silence. <laughs> Don't don't feel like you have to fill the silence the silence with with words. Sometimes people just need to sit on the question. Dennis likes to say you got to sit or stand in the pain of the question. Okay. So I don't mind silence. Hopefully you've seen. I was I let you sit there. Okay. See what what you're going to do with it. How you're going to wrestle with it. What questions you have. To answer your question, when I'm facilitating a group. Um, I will do basically what Wayne says. I mostly ask questions, but I do try to sense where is the Holy Spirit working. And so when when we see something going on, we go off script and pursue that. Okay. And so we just keep working through our questions until we see something. Boom, we go off script. We chase that until we kind of put that to bed and we go back on script until we find something else and we chase that. And it's, it's amazing. Every week it seemed like, it, or every lesson, it's somebody different, something else going on. And we don't know the details of what's going on. We just sense there's pain, there's hurt, there's woundedness, there's misunderstanding, there's confusion. Something's happening, fear. And we start working with that. Okay. Yeah, Wayne? But you're also very good at giving us scripture references mm-hmm. to address the question. Yes, yes. Well, the BLS material is full of scripture. And I try to put in my, my standard questions a lot of Scripture references. I want you to wrestle with Scripture. I want you to see this is rooted in Scripture. This is not man's opinion. This is what we believe Scripture teaches. And that's what gives them now a firm RK. It's not coming out of the will of man or man's opinion. It's coming out of the Word of God. That's the power. Somebody else? I got one minute left. Um, I would like to just, can I just stretch you a bit? May I have your permission? Yes. Okay. 
I want to just go through just quickly some some tips on uh, conducting a facilitation session. These are things that, uh, that I found to be very helpful. Um, first of all, you need regular contact with your students. Now, if you're, if you're doing facilitation long distance, um, phone calls, GoToMeeting, Skype, those kinds of tools are helpful. Uh, I use GoToMeeting as a tool. Uh, but, you know, I have that as part of my business. It, it costs seven or eight hundred dollars a year to have it. So some of you, it may be cost prohibitive. You may have to use Skype. <coughs> Skype, I find, is not quite as good a quality as GoToMeeting. So, but you can do it on Skype if you need to. There's also freeconference.com. You can do it that way as well. I use uh, Google+. Plus. Google+. Plus. Okay, I haven't tried Google+, Plus, but there's a tip for Google+. Plus. So there are tools out there that are inexpensive to help you, and there are tools that are expensive to help you. What I do is go to a meeting, I show a PowerPoint, and I show questions one at a time. Uh, and so the students uh, sign on online, and they can see the questions. And uh, I mute everyone and unmute them as their turn comes. I find if you don't do that, you, you many times you get a lot of feedback and static and things, so you want to you wanna keep it clean. Furthermore, I like to record these. Uh, there are people that, you know, when you're meeting, like we do, we meet every other week. And so you meet 26 times for BLS 100 and 24 times for BLS 200. Well, basically, you meet 50 times over two years. Well, people are going to miss, and you've got to allow that. And when I, when I do it, um, basically, I try to make sure I'm on every call. And since I travel and do things, that means our schedule gets modified. So basically, everybody has to bend to me, and sometimes they can't bend to me. And so that's another reason to have them recorded. And I ask them, when you miss a call, listen to the recording. So you have a chance to hear. And you'll learn a lot by hearing other people wrestle with questions. So uh, this is, to me, that's the value of recording. And so everybody has a chance to listen to every session. Cover one lesson per meeting. I've tried to do two per meeting. It's never worked for me. Uh, if you can figure out how to do that and be effective, more power to you. But I've never been able to make that work. Prepare your powerful questions in advance. You know, I like to have it. I've got them on PowerPoint. I've got PowerPoints for both years. Every time I do it, I go through a BLS. I go through the material again. I read the material. I listen to the audio. I go through all my questions. I will almost always change some of the questions. And sometimes it's I'm changing them to fit that particular group. For example, when I was dealing with the Asians this past year, you know, there were a number of questions that were had been I'd put in there for Canadians the prior year. So I needed to change those questions because Canadians had different issues from Asians. So I'm trying to to tweak it to suit the audience. Um, list and respond. Listen and respond to what the spirit is doing in people. That's very important, listening very carefully to what the Spirit's doing. Offer a Q&A and comment time, and I do it at the end of the meeting. Usually uh, we would do about an hour and ten minutes of, dis of discussion and Q&A, and then the last 15 to 20 minutes we would give everybody a chance to ask a question or make a comment. And that, again, is when you're going to hear more about where they really are, what's really going on. And so it's very valuable time.
consider having a facilitator partner and, if possible, an apprentice. I mean, I, where I am with this is I really don't want to do a BLS without an apprentice. And this next go around, uh, hopefully we'll have two. Um, hopefully I'll have Gerhard here and JT uh, as my apprentices. And selfishly, I use them. Okay? I let them do all the administrative stuff that I don't want to do. You know, they got to keep track of all the records and just send all the reports in and read all the homework and all that and just tell me the important stuff. So that's, you know, some, some level I'm kind of being selfish about it. But the other level, it's training for them. And so I view I, it's important. And I'll, I will try to model for them how to conduct a facilitation session, and then I'm going to let them do it. And I'll give them feedback and try to offer suggestions to them. And that way they're going to learn to do it. And they go through both years with me then hopefully in two years, they're ready to do it themselves. So that's the model I've adopted. It seems to work pretty well. I've done it now several times with, with several different people, and I think they're all now fairly functioning facilitators. Either that or just confused. I don't know. Um, these are people in the course. These are, no, these are, no they're, they're, they're facilitators. Gotcha. You know, they, they're, they are in this training. They've been through the school, and now they're preparing to be facilitators, but they're taking the time to be apprentices first. So it's kind of an intermediate step. Gerald, yes. Mm -hmm. That actually is pretty much the standard that we're doing now, that, uh, which I was going to address a bit, but I'll just say now since it's up, that normally your first year of facilitating, you are going to be co-facilitating or apprenticing your first year. We've pretty much started adopting that as our standard because it, it works so well, as you said, and it's, you know, that, that should model that sense. So that's yeah. pretty much how we do I think that's a great way to do it. it. It really, you know, you're going to go so much deeper into this material when you start wrestling with it, facilitating it. This is where you're going to learn it. Uh, you know, if we could talk a year from now or two years from now after you've been through it again, your comment to me would probably be, wow, I didn't realize all the stuff I missed. I didn't realize how deep this was. Man, I learned a ton. Yeah, this is where you're really going to learn it. It's almost like going through the school is getting you ready so you can really learn it. That's what it is. That reminds me of what the good doctor asked me last night. When, when I was sharing with him, he was asking all about the group and what we do, and I shared with him about what I do, and I've written a book about biblical principles of organizations and things. And he said, oh, have you read the Bible? I said, yeah, I have. <laughs> he found that novel, yeah, novel idea. Okay, let's see if there's anything else I want to mentioned to you. My calls are, are, are one and a half hours long, and I have, the last couple of years, I've been doing them on Friday nights. Now, that largely, again, selfishly works for me, um, and for the, my Asian friends, the last two years, it's been Saturday morning for them, so that worked out well for them. Um, this year, we'll probably, I'll probably continue to do Friday evening or Friday, late Friday afternoon. Uh, develop a, a call protocol. Um, you want to you have these calls, you want them very uh, organized, efficient. You don't want to waste a bunch of time. You want to start the call on time, end the call as close to on time as you can. That, to me, is the hardest part, is ending it, because you get into some rich discussions and you hate to cut those off. So sometimes that gets stretched, but I, I start the calls on time. I mute everyone until it's their time to speak, and then I'll unmute them one at a time. 
That gives us a clean recording, and we do the Q&A at the end. I do display the questions as we go along so everyone can see, and um, I do record the meetings. So those are the key things that we do. Um, I wish we had time to do a, a drill, a you know, practice session, but we don't. So let me just ask before we close, anybody have a question? Question or a comment? Yeah, Adam. Yes. Uh, what I do, the first thing I do on the call is I do a quick summary. This is lesson uh, 14, and the topic is such and such, and the high-level idea is this, and then we launch in to the Q&A. What percent of the time do you spend on the summary versus the Q&A? Oh, I do, I do the summary quickly. Okay. You know, I think a two- or three-minute summary would be long. Okay. You know, we... It's not about me talking. It's more about the facilitators should be really listening. You're listening to what the Spirit is doing and now trying to adjust to what he's doing. Somebody else? I'm curious. Are you listening to the, the question and answers at the end of the chapter or their independent questions and answers? No, no. I, I, have, I have developed my own questions, and I'll... Bring up a question. I will ask the question to whomever's turn it is to respond, and they have an opportunity to respond to the question. And I'm listening to how they respond. So how they respond tells me something about where they are, what's going on in their life, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And, you know, sometimes it's simple, easy, straightforward answers. They got it. They understand it. doesn't seem to be any big issue. Fine. We'll just keep going. I'm going to keep going down the list till we, we see somebody that, okay, there's something going on here. And we're going to stop, go off script, and we're going, to, we're going to deal with that. And that may take, I don't know, five minutes, six minutes, ten minutes, whatever it takes. Okay, anyone else? Have you developed all those PowerPoints? Yes, yes. Now, many of the lessons have questions, sample questions at the end, particularly BLS 200's got that, so that may be helpful to you. You know, but, I, you know, you have the freedom to develop your own script. Just be true to the material. <laughs>